0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Originally airing on SiriusXM.
1: McCard carrying basing at this point. Ben Alamar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. Just
2: an extra big poppy. Be like, you just one of us, man.
1: <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Wharton Moneyballs post-game podcast.
0: This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio, SiriusXM XM, Channel 132, every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. Solo today. Nobody from my crew with me. First time to do this five and a half years into the show. Others do it. Eric does it. Howdy does it. I figured I'd step up eventually. Those guys will be back. Some combination of us are back every Wednesday you guys can join us give us a ring 1-844-WHARTON that's 1-844-942-7866 or drop us an email Maddie Dats will take your email right now real time during the show or during the week if you're listening one of the times we were replayed or listening on our podcast drop us an email businessradio at SiriusXM.com you can also hit us up on Twitter our handle on Twitter is at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyball. we follow all of our guests we tweet About the world of sports analytics, it's not a bad way to stay in touch with that world. You can also send us complaints, questions, observations, over-under suggestions for our final segment that we run every week. Um, We'll be real soon running into, instead of over-unders, we'll be calling football games. As soon as football season rolls around, we'll we'll end our show with picking some games. We're about three weeks out from our college football preview show. Last couple years, we've had a tradition of opening the college football season with a dedicated show, two hours on college football. We'll do that again. Our uh, our friend Ty Hildebrandt from The Solid Verbal is going to step down from about an hour north of here and join us in studio, to do, a, do, a, do a co-host spot, as he has done the last couple of years. That's coming up in about three weeks. And then, of course, the week after that, we'll break out the NFL. we got Mike Lombardi, I think, lined up for the show. He might even be coming in studio. It's going to be fun to have Mike around to help us open the NFL season. We got a little bit between now and then, but look, guys are out there playing football. Summer camps, they call them fall, the cool kids call them fall camp. Fall camp opened for most college football teams last week. A lot of teams open on Friday, August 2nd. People are not yet in pads. They have to go a few days before they get into pads. I think day five might be the first time that they can play in full pads. So they're just getting into real football. It's a fun time of year. This is the time of year where everybody thinks their team is going to be going to be uh, good. They're going to make the playoffs or make a run. They're going to be competitive for their conferences. It's kind of a Hope Springs eternal moment. We could just spend the first half hour, Matt. I think we should do that on the you, you, the University of Texas too deep. I'm just going to break break it down. <laughs> what else are we going to talk about? You just want to talk about Longhorns? Well, sadly, the Longhorns aren't one of the big faves for making the playoffs. They're about 10 or so in the opening coaches poll. The season shaping up to be what the season has been the last couple of years. In fact, it's even sharper at the top than it has been in the past couple of years. Alabama and Clemson, odds on, are like way odds on favorite to make the playoffs. Even I think odds on to be the to be the to be the the team that is the, the the title matchup that is. They expect that people that's a more likely matchup than anything else. I don't know where it is relative to the field, but it might even be preferred to the field for the actual championship. So, yeah, they're odds-on to be the actual championship matchup. Not sure what it's going to take to break those guys up. But uh, after Alabama and Clemson, both minus 600 to make the playoffs, which is way up there in probability. That's north of 80%, I believe. Georgia's just a little bit better than even money to make the playoffs at minus 100. And then we got a few contenders below that. The next five in order, Michigan, Ohio State, Oklahoma, LSU, and Texas couple of interesting things about that. Some of those teams play each other, of course. Ohio State has been running the Big Ten for the last few years. Urban Meyer rolling off of there. It's going to be interesting to see what they can keep it going. A lot of folks think Michigan's going to finally step up. The is going to get them over the, over the, over the edge, up, get, the, get the leg up on Ohio State this year. We'll see, but they have as good a chance to do that as they've had in a while. A lot of folks think they're the most likely team to come out of the Big Ten. By the way, Penn State is growing. They've lost... They lost a couple big guys. They lost an important coach. But they've been they've been stacking that roster every year, and Penn State's going to be competitive this year again. Oklahoma and Texas play each other. Of course, they do that every October in Dallas. They are, according to the odds, teams 8 and 10 most likely to make the playoff. And the, the team in between them, LSU, getting stronger. Coach O supposedly has a real offense down there. That's been a problem for LSU for a while. Defense, not a problem for LSU, but... The forward pass, a little bit of a foreign concept down there, but they supposedly are, are, are bringing it on. They've got what looks to be one of the strongest teams in a, in a few years. Can they get through Alabama in the West? Very, very unclear. But they're they're getting up there to give them the kind of competition that maybe Georgia gives them in the East. But an interesting feature of the schedule this year, LSU has to go across the Louisiana-Texas border to play in Austin, second week of the season, This is September 7 or so. People are excited about it. It's going to be a nighttime game already, the game of the week, and uh, it's the first of a home-and-home series with the Longhorns. So we've got a couple big tests between – we've got a handful of these tests between these top ten teams. Of course, we don't know – it's Alabama. Alabama and Georgia don't have a regular season game. Those Degum SEC guys don't schedule each other every year. It's a little ridiculous. They have to make it to the SEC final. But we'll see Michigan Ohio State at the end of the year. We'll see Texas – Oklahoma in the middle of the season, and we'll see Texas LSU early on. What do the Heisman Trophy odds look like? Tua, of course, the favorite, but Trevor Lawrence right there with him. That's going to be a big battle. The two most impressive quarterbacks in the land. They're going to be battling it out long before they make it to the college football playoff and might see each other on the same field. They are going into the season plus both 250 for Tua and plus 275 for Trevor as the Heisman Trophy. There's another quarterback, Making a run at it, people think he might do well. He's an exciting prospect, Adrian Martinez. Is in his sophomore season now? Maybe just his sophomore season, possibly his junior. He is playing for Nebraska. Nebraska, of course, has Scott Frost as their coach. He lit the world up down at UCF and then returned to his alma mater there in Nebraska. And uh, suggestions are that he's got Nebraska pointed in the right direction. Of course, there hasn't been much competition. In the Big Ten West, it doesn't take a whole lot to, to, to get some attention out there. Wisconsin's been running it for a little while without any competition. Northwestern won it last year, but, you know, Northwestern was a totally middling team. They just didn't have anybody to beat, and so they end up winning the, the division. Well, Nebraska's coming on. Everyone thinks Nebraska's maybe not going to be there this year, but they'll be there soon. Adrian Martinez at the control, Scott Frost as the head coach. Just below that. Nebraska's old rival, old Big 8 rival, Jalen Hurts, fourth on the Heisman list. My goodness, this is painful for a Longhorn to see. Jalen Hurts, a transfer from Alabama. Of course, he goes into Oklahoma, third transfer quarterback in a row to start for, for the Sooners. Supposedly, he hasn't been given the job yet. Supposedly, he's having a fight for the job. But there's no question people expect Hurts to end up with a starting position there. So much so that he's fourth on the list for the Heisman Trophy. Justin Fields, transfer at quarterback, expected again to take the reins at Ohio State. Another very interesting candidate for changing schools. They need a new quarterback. He's at plus 1,000. Same as Hurts, same as Adrian Martinez, all sitting there at the tier below Tua and Trevor. Jake Fromm is in that tier as well. The Georgia quarterback, he won the starting spot early in the year last year beating beating out another highly touted prospect with a year or two under his belt to see a sophomore see a junior he is going to be right there with martinez Hertz fields as the second tier of quarterbacks sam ellinger is on the list he's about eighth or ninth next tier down sam ellinger the longhorn quarterback of course what do we got on the massey peabody take for college football we are early into our Analysis. This is the time of year where we're having to pull everything together. Rufus has to shake the cobwebs off after thinking about a lot of other sports since last February. And there's a lot of machinery to get up and running. And these days with the transfers, there's a lot of details to sort out. So our early numbers are not our final numbers. We'll continue to tweak these things. In fact, there's a fair bit of tweaking to do. So we don't want to put too much stock in these things. But it allows us to get an early sense of the... Of the competition around the country allows us to run some projections. Uh, Rufus, being the, the, the better that he is, needs to get some bets down on futures. It's one of the most important things to do in college football this time of year is to get some money down on some futures. And uh, to do that, he has to run some projections. So we, we've, we've got our preliminary numbers at it. And, and the, the most distinct thing, which is a little disappointing, again, for college football fans who would like to see, I don't know, some, some new blood at the top of the pyramid, We have Alabama five points better than Clemson. So they end the season about a point different in our rankings, just about a point different. And, of course, they played that surprising title game where Clemson really took it to Alabama. But at the end of the season, we have them basically heads up. But from then until now, we have Clemson regressing more, and Alabama not regressing that much. Every team regresses because we just don't know as much, and so you have to kind of weaken your – your distribution on everybody, but teams regress to different amounts, and and it depends on a couple things. It depends largely on returning starters and incoming recruiting talent, but it also depends on what part of their game is is strong. So parts of parts of their parts of their team regress more than that. offense is different than defense. Rushing is different from passing, and so depending on what has been strongest in the past, once they regress back to what we expect at the beginning of the season. The, the the amount of the regression will shift so we see a big difference and we see this separation because of the returning starters and the recruiting talent that alabama has on other people they've just slipped they've, they've we, we, we remain more confident on them than we do others and there's now a five-point separation if these guys were playing week one we would have alabama up by five points now you know we we had them even at clemson bloom out of the water on the title game last year. So who's to really say, but that's what it looks like. And it kind of, it kind of jumped out to me, but it turns out I was digging around. You go to Bill Conley's numbers. Bill runs S created and runs S P plus bill, longtime time SB nation journalist. He's just moved to ESPN. In fact, we're going to have Bill on the show here later today. Bill, Bill will be a guest an hour from now. I'll be talking to Bill. Bill has SB nation um, S and plus numbers and he runs them right after the season. And because you, can, you know who's going to graduate. So you have a sense of, and you have a sense of who's going to go pro. And you know the recruiting class, at least as it, as it stands on recruiting day, on signing day in early February. So you can run early numbers that are not going to be very far off from your numbers come August. So Bill updates his numbers in February, <clears throat> and then he'll update them again here in, um, in August. He'll get them up again soon. He does all his team previews, but those aren't as quantitative. So you can go back and look at Bill's numbers. At the end of the football season last year, early February, he runs preliminary power rankings for the 2019 season. And what do you see? Five-point difference between Alabama and number two team. Now, his number two team is Georgia, slightly above Clemson, whereas our number two team is Clemson, slightly above Georgia. But I'm struck by the fact that we're both seeing five-point gaps between Alabama and the next best team so you know we run different systems we love we love Bill we, we, we and we love his stats but we run a little bit different systems so when you see different systems coming up with very similar numbers it's uh, it's it gives you all the more confidence this is leading me to feel like Alabama's got a got a um, the big favorite now the difference of course is that they play different schedules and Alabama's got much tougher competition in the SEC than Clemson does Clemson people are talking about the Atlantic conference as being one of the weaker conferences in the country i mean even pac 12 week because below clemson there's just not much so they're going to be double digit favorites in possibly every game they play I mean, it's just absurd the schedule that they have to get through in order to in order to make the playoff so even though clemson is looking a little lower on the power rankings than alabama we think in the projections that they're looking quite strong and probably even stronger in terms of the the likelihood of of not getting there uh of of getting to the playoff. So where what what else below? So after that top two is so top-heavy, it's easy to focus on those guys, but where do we see below that? Our numbers look very similar to numbers you see people talk about, what you see in coaches' polls. We have our top ten goes Alabama, Clemson, Georgia, which we've mentioned, then Oklahoma, LSU, Texas A&M, Michigan, Ohio State, and Florida. So a top ten that's very familiar to most people's uh preseason discussions a and a little higher in our numbers than you see in other places uh florida is a team that supposedly is getting it back now a lot of folks are talking about them being around that top 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 10 near the near the bottom of the top 10 they've just stacked the talent year after year and everyone figures it's going to eventually get there we have notre dame 12 a lot of folks have notre dame up in the top 10 now uh notre dame again they've been kind of They've made the playoff in, in recent years, but they haven't been terribly competitive at that level. They've played softer schedules in general, according to some folks, but they continue to stack the talent, and they may actually be competitive, top 10 competitive this year as well. We're Jumping over to Bill's numbers, we'll have more chance to talk to Bill here in a little bit just to see how well that lines up. What does he have sneaking in? He has Mississippi State sneaking up a little higher than we do. Wisconsin sneaking up a little higher than we are. Auburn. Of course, Mississippi State and Auburn have that the curse of the SEC West. They have to they have to get through so much to get there, but they're, they 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 like the team. They like they they like the teams, and of course, Mississippi State has a, a new coach down there, so that's going to be that's going to be a lot of fun to watch. So, this is Wharton Moneyball. You guys can give us a ring if you'd like one eight four four Wharton one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six, or give us. Uh, email businessradio at com, or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyball is the handle on Twitter. You can reach us there. You can follow our sports analytics guests. You can give us over-under suggestions. Again, give us a shot running solo today so I don't have my co-host to lean off. you guys have a question, give me give me a call, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. 942 7866 So what have I told you about college football so far? Well, it's probably at least as boring A a forecast. Inevitably, it won't be quite as boring to live, but a little bit of a boring forecast. Why is it that Alabama and Clemson are so clearly ahead of everybody else? And it seems like with every year that goes by, they get a little more separation. Why are those programs different? What's going on there? And why have the dynamics changed in college football? This is something that Audie Weiner and I have been working on a little bit, and we're going to do some more work on it. So hopefully, we'll be talking with you about it here in the in coming months but we're we've got some ideas on why that's happening we're trying to look into the numbers on why that's happening it's a terrifically interesting question we consider in whinge all we want to about the separation things getting a little boring last season people feel like it's just a little bit too chalky for our tastes up until the title game of course but no one's really be talking about why why is so it's, it's sure Saban's amazing dabo's amazing but is that just it? Is it just the fact that we've got two coaches that happen to be kind of generational talents, more than generational? even maybe the greatest college football coach of all time, or is there something else going on? What else would it be? So it's an interesting question to ponder. Meantime, let's get back to the summer camps and see what players are going to do and keep our excitement going on for college football. About three weeks out, three weeks out, we'll be talking about. Three weeks out, we'll be talking about week one. What about on the NFL side of things? A lot of chatter these days. They are also in camp, of course. Everybody's everybody's getting camp reports out. A lot of quarterback battles around. We've got uh, some holdouts. Very interesting holdouts going on in Dallas, for example. Ezekiel Elliott. What's your position on the Elliott holdout? People, listeners, you got a position on that? If you're a stats head, you know the conversation these days it's been all about how running is overrated that it's just not i mean look we've been we've been heading this way for a long time but it's becoming gospel among the analysts anyway that running is overrated you know when we did our our initial research on the NFL draft umpteen years ago one of the things we found we looked at the value of positions uh, uh, player positions at different points in the draft and the 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 early contracts that NFL players have to sign, the rookie contracts, are suppressed. There's a rookie cap, and because of that, the expected value of a player, all players drafted everywhere at every position, the expected value is positive. So if you consider the value they get on the on the playing field versus what they have to pay in, in compensation, it's positive. And you can look at you can look at that same question by position. If you draft a wide receiver early versus middle versus late, what's the expected value of that acquisition? And it's positive. It's positive for every position at every point in the draft except for running backs at the top of the draft. And we pin that down, this is probably early two thousands, maybe two thousand four or so. And the rhetoric around running backs have only strengthened since then. And Our friend Josh Hermsmeyer recently put a nice piece up on 538. Josh has been running for 538 for the last year or so. And he has a terrific article up there on the Ezekiel Elliott holdout. So, Elliott, high draft pick, you know, like number four or so coming out of Ohio State for the Cowboys. Cowboys all about establishing the run. A little bit of an old school philosophy down there. They've used him probably about as high volume as anybody in the league. And he wants to hold out and be paid a little bit more. So a few weeks ago, the Cowboys were talking as if they were willing to pay him a great deal. More recently, it's looked like a stalemate. So we need Josh to weigh in on this. Josh is an analyst. He's uh, he's at the front of this conversation about the value of running versus passing. He's a pretty big advocate on passing. He's done some analysis talking about how better teams pass in traditional running situations so for example first and second down with more than four to go this is a situation where these days given the offensive setup and given defenses given technology these days passing seems to be advantageous but traditionally you run early in the early in the downs so his analysis shows that better teams teams more likely to win controlling for all the right things Are more likely to pass in those situations than to run. But more than that, Josh went into a breakdown on on Ezekiel Elliott and whether he's worth the money that he's holding out for. And so, most I just want to recommend this article because it's such a fine example of sports journalism these days, sports analytics journalism these days. So, the article is Ezekiel Elliott is not worth the money he wants. This is a few weeks old now, but it's still relevant. This is Josh Hermsmeyer on 538. And he just does a great job of breaking down, you know, basically running back analysis these days. He he gives them the benefit of the doubt by saying, hey, you know, running, sure, 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 passing matters more overall. But maybe in certain situations, running matters more. So situational football. This is a this is a phrase that people like to kick around. Situ- you got to pay attention to situations. You got to gear your scheme for situations, your personnel for situations, you evaluate players by situations. So this may be overdone a little bit, but it's important to at least consider. So Josh goes into this and says, okay, there are a few situations where running seems especially important. One is when it's late in the game, you're trying to run out the clock. Another is when you're in the red zone. So as you get closer to the other team's end zone, it's harder and harder to pass the ball. The space that the defense has to defend is compressed. And so they can, defend it more efficiently so yet yeah, more and more important to be able to run the ball so yeah so red zone rushing is important end of game round of the clock rushing and then he talks about just you know when you need four yards or something and you're not in the red zone so between the 20s and you need three or four yards this is a situation where it's very common to run and it's helpful if you can convert those downs and so he looks at that situation as well what he finds is that Elliot is positive in all these situations he's an asset It's he's more successful than 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 average but he is very low relative to his peers so if you look at where he ranks he in in, he's he's never at the top of the charts he's nowhere higher than the middle of charts and sometimes he's as low as 26 or 28 in the league in even these situations where he's supposed to be especially valuable so it's it, it, that's not even comparing him to people who are drafted at the same position, because very rarely is a is a running back drafted that highly. So, Josh's numbers are showing very low draft picks performing very well, better than Elliot in all these situations, and it just reinforces this story that running backs, you may not like it, and it may not be, it may not be something you want to say. It may not be something that you you love about the NFL and. And running backs, because they've got such a great tradition in the NFL, <clears throat> but it looks like they're just remarkably replaceable. And so when these running backs like Elliot or Le- Le'Veon Bell last year hold out, they're holding out for something that just isn't isn't appropriately rewarded anymore. Josh went into the details of the salary cap and how much of a team's roster is typically allocated to running backs. And I don't have the numbers directly in front of me but it's relatively low four, five, six percent something like that on average is allocated to all of the running backs on a team's roster and the Cowboys are looking at something like twice that and this is a really really interesting way to look at things because at a high level this is what general managers have to do in the NFL It's like how do I want to spread my money around where do I want to double down and where it's especially important to have the best players possible where can I kind of get by and with the with the with the insight coming from numbers and with the change in the game, all suggesting that running back is not the place to double down. Here we have the Cowboys historically over investing in running backs, and now being asked to even increase that investment. So all in all, I think it's a terrific Josh's article is just a terrific analysis of this particular situation. But in analyzing this particular situation, he illuminates the running game where generally, the child, the personnel. Um, resource allocation problem that, that general managers have more generally and he does it of course while writing very very nicely so I, I again push you towards that article it's a great way to catch up on what's going on in the NFL especially around the running game great way to be exposed to Herms work what else in the NFL what do we know about who's favored around, around that league of course they're about a week behind the NFL they're about a week behind college football and we do not have Massey Peabody numbers up yet uh, there are some numbers people are kicking around. The betting markets, of course, are wondering about what teams are going to do. They everybody wants to jump in, even this time of year, on what teams are going to do. Over under totals, the, the win totals are posted for various teams. And there's a nice piece again, 538. We we despite appearances, we are not affiliated with 538. We just have a bunch of friends up there, Mike Salfino. Mike is a longtime friend of, of ours and a friend of Massey Peabody's. And, in fact, he's guest co-hosted here before. And Salfino has a piece up on 538 on teams that will go from last place in their division to first place in their division, which, of course, would mean they'd make the playoffs, the first place team in each division makes the playoffs. The, the idea, the premise, the starting place is that the NFL is volatile. This is maybe the opposite of college football, which seems so not volatile these days, especially at the top. But the NFL teams are bouncing back around remarkably year to year. Some franchises seem to seem to avoid that. I mean the Patriots are the are the gold standard for that. they between coaching and quarterbacks, they've got something very persistent. Some franchises, even beyond that, seem to do well generation over generation. The Steelers come to mind, for example. You see enough of that and you think, well, something's going on besides players. Maybe there's an ownership there's a stability. There's a wisdom in the way those, those things are run. Those matter a lot. But around a few examples of stability, there's just a lot of bouncing around. There's the mean reversion. If you ask how much of a team's performance in one season persists into the next, on average across all teams and all seasons, it's about it's about one third. So you're regressing about two thirds towards the mean, which is which feels like a lot, you know. And you, you you may not notice it when you see the Pats be good year over year. When you see the Ravens and the Steelers competitive year over year, you don't notice that there's that much bouncing around, but there's a lot of bouncing around. And the observation is that at least one team every year goes from last in their division to first in their division. So Salfino has a nice piece up on 538 right now about about who might be that team this year. You can also see these regressions in the over-under totals, the Vegas over-under versus what happened last year. And, of course, when teams are very bad one year, you expect them to improve. That's just regression to the mean. But we can go into some of the details and ask which teams are most expected to improve or who, which teams are expected to improve the most. Top of the chart this year, New York Jets. People have been waiting for those guys to come along for a while. Sam Darnold is coming into his second year, second year. So I'm excited about it to, see, to see what Darnold does. Quarterbacks have a hard time in their first year. They just do. Pat Pat Mahomes had the benefit of sitting out for a year. Famously, Aaron Rodgers sat out for a couple of years. Famously, Peyton Manning was bloody awful in his first year. I mean, there's just a huge adjustment. Baker Mayfield breaking the mold looked pretty good last year. But historically, it's been a hard thing to do. Darnold thrown into it. Not a whole lot of surrounding cast. Can he pick it up? Can he pick it up? The, mar- the betting markets think they might go f- as high as seven and a half. They over under on those guys is seven and a half after winning just four last year. So the Jets are top, top of the market for improvement in win totals. Maybe no coincidence that Salfino decided write about that. He's a Jets guy. Northern Jersey, he's a Jets guy. Maybe that caught his eye. Let's do, let's do an article on it. In the next half hour, delighted to have Herman Ponser join us. Herman speaking of Twitter can be followed at Herman Ponzer, Ponser's P O N T Z E R. We're talking to Ponzer because of an article that he co-authored in Science Advances this summer. Ponzer is an associate professor of evolutionary anthropology at Duke University. He's also an associate research professor of global health at the Duke Global Health Institute. Ponzer works with lab and field research to investigate the physiology of humans and apes to understand how ecology, lifestyle, diet, and evolutionary history affect metabolism and health. Herman, welcome to Wharton Moneyball.
1: Thanks for having me on. How you guys doing this morning?
0: We're doing fine, doing fine. Delighted to have you. Where are you calling in from this morning?
1: Uh, I'm down in Chapel Hill these days, but I grew up in western Pennsylvania, So, but I'm, I'm still happy to talk to somebody from Philadelphia. That's
0: what <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You're a long way from Philadelphia. It? it is Pennsylvania, and we're all one state. Curse, sure. you're from Kersey, PA, which is outside of Pittsburgh. I gather that you grew up, maybe still are a Steelers fan. That, oh yeah, that puts us decidedly on different sides of the NFL line. I grew up in West Texas, Herman, so I'm a little bit of a Cowboys fan. And I grew oh, up boy. while the Steelers were were putting it putting it to the Cowboys and the Oilers, <laughs> my two Texas teams. I still I still got some scars from that, but i've I've learned I've learned to appreciate what they do as a franchise.
1: Well, yeah, somehow they're usually they're usually pretty good. It's Not, not always. They're usually pretty good. Hey, if they hadn't been for the Patriots these last, I don't know, 20 or 40 years, however long <laughs> the the ball, we might have even had a couple more Super Bowls. But anyway.
0: Right. Well, listen, we appreciate you calling in this morning. You're in Chapel Hill. Of course, that's right next door to Durham. It sounds like most of your work there is at Duke and Durham. Yeah, that's right. Beautiful part of the world you guys did this research that jumped out to us we saw it carried we should probably give some love to the folks who carried it give me one second we saw the popular piece was in the bbc they did Mm -hmm. a piece in june and of course the articles in science advances but it's the title of the article let me just really read it to folks extreme events reveal an elementary i'm not sure if i'm saying that right elementary elementary limit on sustained maximal human energy expenditure what jumps out to me is you're saying there's a limit you know we, we'd like to talk about pushing limits we'd like to talk about the psychological limits mm-hmm. that are merely psychological and you're saying fine 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 but there is actually a physiological limit to the energy you can express and still and still you know sustain life essentially and so we want, right. yeah. we want to hear you talk about your motivation for the research and how you did it we've gone through the article i have a number of questions for you but just kind of set the stage for us where are you coming from with this and broadly how did you go about answering this question
1: sure sure so you know i'm like you said in the beginning i'm interested in how the body works and how it got that way evolutionarily and one of the things that we focus on a lot is energy expenditure in my lab because you know life is a game of turning energy into babies basically at that fundamental (laughs) level uh and so um, we, we focused a lot on, on how people and other organisms spend energy, so we're really good at measuring that. Um, and then, in a, I guess it was 2014, uh, Bryce Carlson, who's also a co-author on this study, um, approached me at a conference, uh, an academic conference, and he said, Hey, we're going to have people run across North America um, a marathon a day <laughs> for you know, five months, and do you want to measure energy expenditure for those guys? Uh, and, and girls. And I said, yeah, absolutely. That sounds like too much fun to pass up. So
0: Herman, real quickly, um, you you said, so Carlson is a researcher at Purdue, right? And you said, mm -hmm. we're going to have, did they, did they arrange this race for the purpose of studying people? Or did somebody else, the crazy ultra marathoners decide to do it on their own?
1: Yeah, no, no, no. That's, that, this idea came from the crazy ultra marathon world. Okay. Um, and Bryce, who, so he, Bryce has actually dropped out of academia now and now does, he's a full time ultra guy. He just okay. rode across, he, he rode his own one man rowboat. It doesn't look like a rowboat, it looks like a spaceship, across uh, the North Atlantic solo last year, oh, for wow. example, okay. for fun. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. So <laughs> he, he's an, a really fun, but pretty intense guy. And he, so he, he arranged the science part of this big effort. Of course, other people were arranging the actual logistics of the race and organized it. Um, but he was in charge, because at the time he was an academic, he was in charge of the research part. So he got me to do the energetics bit, some other people to do some other parts of, of it. And we, we measured energy expenditures, so calories burned each day. From we started with right before people started with the race, so we kind of had a baseline measurement, um, and then we did the first week of the race when they're running a marathon a day, which as you can imagine, those calorie expenditures were really, really high, and then um, and then we did it at the end of the race as well. Twenty weeks later, we did we caught the end of the race when they had gotten to DC. So they ran from Los Angeles to DC over the course of five months, um, three thousand miles, I think. Something like
0: that. Yeah, it's just. It's just absurd. It's
1: mind, mind blowing.
0: Yeah, you, you, it's like you said. You're running a mar- If let me see if I can remember. It's in the paper, but it's a marathon a day, six days a week for right. four months, four to for six months. months. For 140 five months. One hundred and forty
1: days. One hundred and forty days. So it ends up. Yeah, be, I guess it's not quite five months. Something. Yeah, just
0: remarkable. So a couple of methodological questions. We're gonna yeah. we're, we 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 are gonna we're gonna do one paper on this half hour, so we've got time to get into it. But I, there are a yeah. couple of details that jump out, and and I think are interesting. One is, and this, this isn't as hostile a question as it sounds. It's a genuine question. The yeah. sample size you have is quite small. And I think it's, oh, sure. I think it's just a different, a different world and a different methodology in this research space than, say, in psychology. And, and sample oh, yeah. size has become like a really big deal in the replication crisis. So when you read the paper and you say, we measured six athletes That's you know, right. as they did this thing, and then we got additional measures on like three of them. How, yeah. how am I supposed, as a social scientist, this is a physiological thing, as a social scientist, how am I supposed to think about sample sizes of that, that size?
1: Yeah, well, you should be skeptical, because we should all be skeptical of everything, right? So that's fine. True. Uh, uh, so, and this is actually, kind of gets to the broader point of the paper. So um, people have been trying to measure, you know, the limits of human ability for a long time, and in different ways, uh, and... Always, always, always. When you get out to the tail of the distribution, there's fewer people out there, right, right? Right. So if you in anything, so the more extreme you want to measure, the less you're going to have available to measure. Yep. Uh, there's smaller samples, and so what had happened is over I think the last 30 years of people trying to do this seriously, you've got two dozen maybe uh, really good studies, but they're all kind of these snowflakes that are out there, and, and nobody had put them together before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so together, these couple dozen studies end up being a sample size of you know, dozens of people, which, again, in the bio, biological world, uh, dozens is fine. You don't need hundreds. Uh, so uh, the, the the precision and the accuracy of the methods is such that the reliability is such that you don't need hundreds. You, dozens is okay.
0: Right. It is, nobody, a fundamentally, it is a fundamentally different enterprise, what you're doing in social science. Is. There's less That's noise okay. in the measurement.
1: That's right, but nobody had even gotten dozens before okay. because it's not possible with these crazy, uh, you know, efforts. And so um, what, what our study does is it says, wait a second, okay, we have these six, but what if we put it in the context of all these other studies and we use all those studies, at six or 10 or 12 people at a time, and we can use that to kind of lay out and map out the boundaries of human ability. And when you do that, you have a much more powerful analysis, of course, right. because now, instead of having six people doing one thing, you've got dozens of people doing all sorts of events, and you can realize, oh, my God, they, they, they form this really sharp boundary, this limit this sort of human envelope of what's possible. So that that's the sample size issue. If it was just the six from this study, yeah, I don't think we'd have uh, as much to say.
0: I oh, got it. Got it. Okay, so there's two answers to my question. One is, look, it's different in 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 physical science in physiology than it is in social science. There's much more precision, so we don't have to mm-hmm. have. as And the other is, we're, we're actually... Adding these data to other data from other studies, in order right. to draw this bigger curve. So one yeah. other methodological. Well, it, we'll get to that second question in a second. But give us the. You're going to talk a lot about about metabolic scope or, or the basal metabolic rate, mm-hmm. and then you're going to you're going to you're going to use that. You're going to be talking about multiples of that as the fundamental you know summary of your research. Can you tell us what that is?
1: Yeah. So. Um we, we have two measurements basically here. We have a measurement we call total energy expenditure, which is the all the calories you burn in a 24-hour period. So that's everything you've done in 24 hours, all the work your body's done, all those calories. That's total energy expenditure. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got basal metabolic rate, which is the rate, the calories per hour that you're burning at your body's sort of lowest energy expenditure points. So usually, you can think about it basically while you're sleeping, okay. or right after you've woken up, that's okay. your basal metabolic rate. And of course, your metabolic rate goes up and down over the course of the day, depending on how active you are and what you're doing. Yep. So you have, we capture the whole budget, and then we capture, I, we like to think about it as budgets, actually, which maybe is uh, <laughs> easier to talk about on a Moneyball ball Right. Cup Hel- helpful. So, helpful. So if you think about your, your full budget, your sort of daily budget, and then you think about the slice of that budget that's allocated to Basal metabolic rate, which is just basically your, your organs uh, just staying alive at their lowest energy okay. rate. Okay. Um, now, so what we really care about is the total energy expenditure piece because that's, that's the size of the budget. We're asking how big can that budget be over different timescales. But the problem with just looking at just the absolute number of calories per day, that total energy expenditure number, is that there's um, a correlation, a covariation with body size. So just by virtue of having more cells in your body, if you're a bigger person, you'll burn more calories every day. Okay. If you're smaller, you'll burn fewer. And so when we compare, when we do that, you know, what I was talking about before, we take all these different studies, all these different people, we, we put them all into the same data set. Um, we have to correct for body size. And the easiest way to do that is to uh, use basal metabolic rate as our as a denominator and take the ratio of total to basal got it. because basal metabolic rate also changes in the same ways with body size so that ratio it's you can get hung up on that ratio of total energy expenditure to basal metabolic rate I would say just think of it as calories per day yeah and just know that when we talk about that we've done it in a clever way that uh, that deals with the body size issue
0: okay so if I take me through the basal because basal metabolic rate is resting, yeah. So my normal day, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have some multiple of that. It's not going to be that unless I'm in no, a coma, right. presumably. So, so the, what's a yeah, normal so day going to be?
1: A normal day for a normal person is about 1.8 okay. times your basal metabolic rate.
0: Okay. And then what you go out to do is you say, look, this, this has been shown. People have said the max is you know seven or the max is five yeah. in these various studies. And I think mm-hmm. the starting place for you guys was, well, it kind of depends on how long you're doing that thing. And the longer, right. you, the longer you're doing it, the less you can afford to overspend your budget. And so yeah. if you're doing something for a very long period of time, the max is going to be quite a bit lower. This is the overarching idea, right?
1: That's exactly right, yeah. So that's when you when you draw out, you make a plot, how many calories can you burn every day and how long can you maintain that for? Mm-hmm. And you end up making a very uh, sort of a sloped <laughs> ceiling out there where if, if you're doing a triathlon, you can go – you know, about 10 times your basal metabolic rate, something like that. Um, But if you're doing something like the Tour de France, then you're stuck at four to five times your basal metabolic rate. And those people, you know, another way to think about it is those those Tour de France riders who just finished up, if they could have done seven times their basal metabolic rate, they would have finished two days early and, and won by, you know, by leaps and bounds, but they can't. As, as hard as they can push themselves, is somewhere between four and five times their basal metabolic rate. They can every do it, day They can do
0: well. it. They can do it harder for a short period of time, but That's then right, they, but pay, they pay a cost of some kind.
1: Yeah, they'd blow up, and, they, and then they wouldn't finish, or they would be so slow the next day that they'd be uncompetitive.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay, so. Give us an example of some of the – you have just mentioned a couple, but you put together – one of the neat things about the study is that you put together a variety of activities, which is going to help you identify the mechanism that limits these things. So give us an example of the variety of activities that show up on this curve.
1: Yeah, so um, we had this data from the people who ran from Los Angeles to D.C., and we want to put this in context of everything else. Um, and so we did uh, – I just, I just went into PubMed and, and Web of Science and everything else I could find, Google Scholar, everything – To look for every measurement I could find of all the highest intensity, longest lasting uh, events that have ever been measured. And so we've got um, Ironman triathlons. We've got the Western States Ultramarathon. We've got the Tour de France. We've got uh, people who've who've trekked across Antarctica to the South Pole. Um, We have uh, the guy who just broke the Appalachian Trail running records. We have some crazy guy who did 31 triathlons in 31 days, or something like that. Um, And of course, the 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 kicker is, if you want to know, know, okay, what's the longest lasting, hardest event anybody's ever done? That's pregnancy. That's like the longest. That's 270 days plus of you know high metabolic rate. And so we couldn't find anything that was that long and that was any harder than that. And so that that ends up being sort of one of the bookends of the of the data set. So
0: help make sure I understand. So you're relating pregnancy to these other endurance events, ultra marathons, yeah. repeated triathlons. Tell us m- more about that. So I don't, most people don't, I mean, people know pregnancy is hard, especially those who have been pregnant, but people yeah. don't generally think about that as a nine month endurance event, but you're, that's exactly what you're calling it.
1: That's exactly right. So um, the, you know, the, the machinery. So, so one thing is it's interesting, isn't it? that all these really different activities end up on the same boundary they all push our body to the same limit right. and the reason they do that is because the machinery that's feeding your body calories that's so that's why that you, know, you talked about that alimentary limit at the beginning that's what we're talking about here how fast can your body get good calories in and to to feed all those cells that are working so hard pregnancy pushes that machinery to the limit um, over you know over the 9 months and so Uh, since the limit seems to be this machinery that's able to fuel the body, it kind of doesn't matter what it's fueling, right? It doesn't care. The the, the energy supply Mm -hmm. side doesn't care too much about what it's supplying for. It just knows, well, I've got this. It doesn't know anything. It's not conscious. But it doesn't doesn't care what it's supplying the energy for. It just knows I I can't do more than this for this amount of time, and that's the limits, and and here you go.
0: Mm Mm-hmm hmm. OK. Fascinating. And I'm sure women around the world will be happy to know that that's the way you think about pregnancy, because that's the experience they're having. And many of us fail to appreciate it. But that's yeah. kind of the far end of you're basically saying because it has to last so long, yeah. the, you can afford to overspend your energy budget by less there. So you end up with something like a two point two or two point five. What is it there? That's right.
1: So, so pregnancy ends up being at about a two point two times your basal metabolic rate. If it was much higher, it wouldn't work. Because um, the other thing we found is that if you go above about a two and a half times your basal metabolic rate, so for most people listening, that would be somewhere between 4,000 to 4,500 calories a day. If you go much above 2.5 times your basal metabolic rate, your body actually can't get calories in fast enough to replenish what you burned each day. Right. So pregnancy has to be below that window because, of course, in pregnancy, by rule, you have to be able to gain weight. Right. Because right, you're growing, <laughs> you're growing, uh, you know, another organism. Uh, so, you know, to do that, you have to be below the limit where you're just a replacement. You have to be where you can actually add more right. calories every day than you burned off. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so you can go above that ceiling for a while. You can go above that 2.5 for a while, like we said with the Tour de France. But you're burning you're burning your stores as you do that. So it's not really sustainable forever.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Herman Ponser. Herman is an associate professor of evolutionary anthropology at Duke. He's also at Duke Global Health Institute. He's a co-author of a new paper, as of this summer, in Science Advances, which establishes, finds an interesting regularity: the the, the true limit to how much energy we can expend um, over any period of time. So there's a there's an envelope, there's a limit, it's a crisp, as he says in the paper, a crisp summary, a crisp limit to what we can do, and. You make a few interesting observations here. I want to follow up with a couple of mm-hmm. a couple of questions. One, you just mentioned the Tour de France, yeah. and it is one which you note, and I wondered whether you were kind of um, doing it in a subtle, intentionally subtle way, like maybe the New York Times writers do sometimes. Um, let me just read what you say. You say first, in at least two studies: Tour de France cyclists and elite Nordic skiers. Subjects maintained metabolic scopes of three times and to five times basal metabolic rate. Without substantial weight loss. So this is what we've just been talking about. They're overspending mm-hmm. their budget. And if they go above two and a half or something, they're supposed to lose weight. And, yeah. you're, and you're saying, well, in these two observations, these two studies, they're small participant observation. But there's a couple of, you know, these are well-known mm-hmm. sports, endurance yeah. sports, Tour de France and Elite Nordic skiers. They managed to do that and not lose weight. And you say, you say, while neither group exceeded the apparent sustainable limit. But the the limit that you're drawing this curve, it's unclear whether the above average energy intake reflects, quote, special nutritional strategies (laughs) or individual biological variation. That sounds like you're that sounds like you're right on top of everybody's suspicion about the Tour de France. I'm just curious whether they're they're doing something that allows something. Maybe it's legal for all I know. But what are these special nutritional strategies that might allow them to be at the absolute limit of what they can do, but they're also at the limit without losing weight, which is they're not supposed to be able to do.
1: Yeah, that's right. Well, so first of all, before I, I get sued, uh, I'll just be real clear that, that these are measurements that were taken 30 years ago now. Uh, uh, the Tour de France oh, did. So it's, no, it's nobody who's racing today, I promise you. Okay. Uh, so that's
0: even more likely that there were special nutritional strategies.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, you know, and I've, I've heard it's actually really hard to get data on this for obvious reasons. Nobody wants to talk about it. Um, but you know, you hear about people in these events, um, doing things like overnight. They, like, they'll, you know, they finish their, the, the stage that day. They go to their hotel room and, you know, the team doctors there and gives them, uh, an IV glucose drip, right? Yeah. And so what's that doing? I don't, I actually don't even know that that's, that would be illegal. I, it's just, you know, glucose is what you get out of your food. So it probably isn't even illegal, um, or wasn't back then. I don't, I have no idea if they were doing this. This is just stuff I've heard about. Uh, but the point is, if you do that, if you can exogenously, you know, if you can kind of r- do an end run around your digestive system and say, you know, here let, let's just put the the calories directly into your blood, right, rather than having you digest them, um, then yeah, that that's exactly how you would, you would get around <laughs> this alimentary limit. So, well, so, <laughs> um, so I, I would actually, what I would love, and if anybody who's out there wants to do it um, and knows how to how we can do this, I would love to, to do these tests. You know sort of non-judgmentally just to know the science of it uh but anyway
0: well so the the other sport you that that matches that is the nordic skiing and but the other alternative that you suggested was you know special genes of some kind and so,
1: so it's also possible that the people who are at that elite level and have found themselves you know doing better than the thousands of other people who have tried and somehow just do better in these long races are people whose digestive systems are just fantastic, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and you know at the outer limits of what the human body can digest? That would make sense too.
0: Got it. So Herman, we're low on time. I got two questions: one very technical and one very not technical. Okay. So technical first: doubly labeled water. Yeah, this is fascinating. Can can you give it? Can you give it to us in a very brief period of time? This is. You said you're very good at measuring energy expenditure. That seems like a hard thing to do. So y'all have yeah. gotten really good at it with this one technology. What is it?
1: Okay, so you drink all water is H2O, right? Um doubly labeled water has a different isotope of H and a different isotope of O that we can use as a tracer in your body. So you drink this isotoply, isotopically enriched water, um, and we can watch those H's and O's flush out of your system by taking urine samples after that. And you flush all the H's out with your urine and other water loss. You'll lose all the O's as both the water that you lose, H2O, but also as the CO2 that you breathe out. And so when we watch you deplete those isotopes in urine samples over the course of a week or so, um, we can measure how much CO2 you're producing because we can see, oh, this is how much, you know, this is how much water's being lost, right. this is how much CO2 is being lost, and we get how much, how many uh, calories you're burning because you can't make CO2 without burning calories, you can't burn calories without making CO2.
0: So the ability to do this required specially engineering water in some way.
1: This yeah, you the... have to get isotopically enriched water. Mm-hmm. It's totally, it's, so, it's not like. Uh, radioactive or anything like that it's just totally stable and fine yep. it's a yep. trace that you know but it's uh yeah and then we have to bring it back to the lab and, and put it in a mass spec and uh amazing ratio. so amazing. It's, it's technically cool it's, <laughs> And it's, it's the gold standard for doing this stuff outside the lab you can't you can't right. get calories per day outside of the laboratory otherwise
0: right and, it's, and you can do it now with non-humans and something you just you know if you're able to get urine samples from apes or whatever i assume that's part of it as well
1: yeah that's right we've done we've done chimpanzees and gorillas and orangutans and bonobos and everybody
0: herman what do you think i mean this is fascinating ridiculously interesting especially relevant to these endurance athletes in the last 30 or 45 seconds here what do you think the main implication is for the average person who who may not be in in participating in these sports
1: yeah well i think you know maybe not the average person who's not uh you know exercising a lot but if you exercise a lot and if especially if you're really excited about running marathons and ultra marathons and you have some really ambitious training schedule that is going to last you for weeks or months, that ceiling, that long-term endurance ceiling is relevant to you Mm -hmm. because if you're on a training schedule that works for a week or two weeks, that doesn't mean it's going to be able to work for you for a month or two months, Mm -hmm. right? You're going to eventually hit that ceiling potentially. Mm -hmm. So you got to listen to your body, realize those limits are real and, uh, you know, adjust accordingly
0: terrific and we've heard more and more in sports science the importance of rest and this is, fits yeah. very well with with that kind of evolution listen herman very much appreciate your taking the time to be with us this morning very cool research we wish you the best with all of it
1: thanks for having
0: me it was really fun absolutely herman ponzer ghost dealers herman, <laughs> herman ponzer associate professor of evolutionary anthropology at duke university you can follow him at herman ponzer That has been the second quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the
3: break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
0: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning. 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning. Solo, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen out doing Eric, Audie, and Shane things. They will be back. Some combination of us are back here doing the show every Wednesday morning. You guys can jump in and join us. We wish you would. The number is 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866, or email us, businessradioatsyrusxm.com. You can email us anytime, any day of the week, live or not live, Business Radio at siriusxm.com or hit us up on twitter at wmoneyball is our handle on twitter at wmoneyball great way to follow or reach out to us you can give us some over-unders you can ask about football games which are about to be relevant again here in the next few weeks speaking of football rolling into the third quarter another guest segment one of the longtime friends of the show one of our favorite people in sports for that matter bill conley is joining us bill good morning welcome back Thanks
3: for having me once again.
0: How are you doing this morning?
3: Not too bad. Not too bad. There's actually, you know, there's a buzz. There's buzz coming. (laughs) We're what, like ten days from games.
0: I know, and I, 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 you know, it's the the soft open. The soft open (laughs) is is uh, is two and a half weeks. What are you saying? Ten days. Is there a game even earlier than week zero?
3: Oh no no wait! I w I've had I had seventeenth in my head. Dang! Now I'm disappointed. It's, it's uh, <laughs> we're twenty fourth. So seventeen okay. days. So okay, that's fine. Two, I still got stuff
0: to write. Two, two and a half weeks. We got a soft open with week zero, and then week one, of course, three and a half weeks from now. And it's been a long, cold off season. We're ready for things to gear up. It's been an eventful off season for you, Bill Conley, and and we we would ah. want to check in with you anytime this time of year or during the season, but especially this year because you've made a big move. You've moved from SB Nation. To ESPN over the course of the summer, we want to hear how that has been going. So, how did that? How does that work? But did you like move your family up to West Hartford, and you're like <laughs> going into the mothership every day with your little lunch pail? Is that is that what it means to work at ESPN?
3: That is what it means for a lot of people. But I, but um, I, you know, as much as I've come to already, I've, I've found my I've found restaurants at West Hartford. I've found places uh that you know can kind of attach you to a place I get to still live in Columbia, Missouri so, okay. so I'm fine with that.
0: <laughs> okay, good. That means you're still gonna be tailgating for Mizzou games this fall? They haven't interfered as, too much with as, your f-
3: as is, you. Know, def- I probably won't make every game, but, yeah, I will definitely be able to hit some tailgates. All
0: right. So let's talk about what it does mean for you. you're going to continue doing what you do, which is crunch numbers and write about football teams. You've mostly done college over the years. You've expanded into NFL in, in recent years. How should we think about the shift and what it will mean for your work and what and what we'll be consuming of it?
3: Yeah, so, I mean, first of all, you know, in terms of what I'll be doing, start with Bill Barnwell. That's that's the best place to start. You know, during the season, he has basically the the giant recap column on, on like a Monday and the giant kind of preview column on a Thursday. I'll be on kind of the same, the, roughly the same writing schedule, which will be interesting for me because it'll basically, it'll be the same things that I'm writing. It'll just come out in two giant bursts. Okay. Uh, in a given week, but it should be about the same, and you'll still you'll get um, updated. at the plus ranking.
0: Do you match Barnwell
3: ESPN rankings page?
0: Bill, real quickly, do you match Barnwell and in word count? I mean, you guys are both known for being prodigious writers, but Bill, I mean, yours are like you tend to write high volume smaller pieces, and he writes these massive. I don't even know how he does it, but like in- I,
3: instantly, I have an advantage in that I get to write about 130 teams and not 32. Right. But, um, I do need to. I've been curious about that. Like the, we, we've joked about, you know, competing in word count, but I need to. I need to actually find out. I need to copy paste a couple of his columns and see exactly what I'm dealing with. <laughs> uh
0: huh. Is Aaron Schatz getting commission from some kind of finder's fee from ESPN huh? these days? How does that work? <laughs> uh,
3: you, uh, you, you would wonder, yeah. Um, I mean, his his coaching trees absurd at the moment. It's it's been when I when I announced I was moving to ESPN I I, I tweeted out as part of that a, a reference to uh, you know, just how any any young writer at this point should still be trying to. Um, you know, it, it would be a great experience to work under him. He knows he knows the field. He uh, understands the a lot of the landmines, and he's a heck of an editor too. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I can't say enough about wow. uh, the fact that he was kind of the first editor that I had. Wow, uh, I think it did a lot.
0: And you and Barnwell were Football Outsider employees. What what numbers roughly?
3: Oh yeah, Barnwell had to had to have been really high up there. Um I he was an intern back in what, like oh six, oh seven, something like that. Okay. He was I think he edited some of my stuff in in 08 or Amazing. so when I started coming aboard. Okay. Um, but yeah, he has to be pretty I you know I I was he already had a pretty stocked pro team by the time I came aboard to write about college, but okay. Barnwell was up there.
0: Got it. All right, so I stepped on what you're doing other than those. you have two big articles a week um, yep. previewing and then reviewing, and then what about on the number side? You've had you are the creator of S P Plus of course. Mm-hmm. S&P Plus is by far the most talked about analytics in college football and it's, it's, I think it's really advanced the deepened and advanced the conversation about football teams and individuals. Um, What is, is, is anything happened with that? Is, is it moved officially from SB nation? How, what does it look like? And and will your work on that be any different now?
3: Yeah. I mean, as far as I know, the work on it won't be any different. Um, And it will be posted from this point forward. I think you can find all the archives of football outsiders. still. I hope you can, I think you can. Um, But Starting in 2019, you'll be able to find the, the updated version on ESPN.com on the in, within the college football rankings mm-hmm. drop-down, basically. Um, and we'll have that. I've updated S&P Plus projections, and we're wait, we're going to try to unveil that when the page itself is ready. So, like another i don't know a week and a half or something like that is when the updated projections will go up but um yeah i mean like i you know i try to provide you know big google docs with a lot of, with a big data dump in them and everything and yep. we'll see exactly how that goes that fall th- this fall this might be a little it might be a little bit of a bumpy road just because i joined so late in the summer but we've got uh you know a bunch of ideas for moving forward and and I've, I've certainly expressed that I, I like sharing as much information as possible, and I think they understand that. Good,
0: good, good, good. All helpful, and again, I think it I think it advances the whole conversation. It's great to see all the different corners of the college football world that reference S and P Bill, by the way, you can follow Bill at ESPN underscore Bill C at ESPN underscore Bill C. You tweeted sometime in the last week a picture of some fancy new shoes, and you said this is my <laughs> new my new TV, TV gear. So if you got some. Yeah. You you will in fact be traveling. Uh, west hartford is this right or what is the tv appearance part of the gig
3: so it does seem like you know it'll be two columns and then some just sporadic I, we don't know the schedule exactly but from my house i will be making daily wager appearances making uh. in theory call it some college football live appearances and then just whatever else comes about uh from week to week but then yeah about once a month the idea is that i'll spend the weekend in Bristol, um, try, maybe try to do some shows there and, and and all that. So it will be mostly from my house, which is great because I can keep my shorts on, but, um, <laughs> but there will be some occasional actual TV appearances uh, every few weeks.
0: Okay. Last question about the transition. What difference will it make to your work to have the resources that ESPN has? And I'm thinking especially about – this may not be the most important set of resources, but I'm thinking especially about the analytics group they have up there. They've built – a phenomenal group over time and um yeah. they do and i kind of like espn model seems to be let a thousand flowers bloom we're not trying to make you know everybody do one thing but right. you've got you've got some really interesting colleagues out there and in what way will that change your work or in what way will, will you be taking advantage
3: of it yeah i mean i i don't know how i'll be taking advantage of it yet because i'm not used to it yet it's kind of, it's really i mean I, we've certainly i've had some conversations um but i mean the the depth of data that they sit on and that they can work from is is pretty incredible, and I think it's going to take me a little while to get used to the fact that I have these resources I do think oh i've seen some of the tools that we got behind the scenes in terms of the charting data and all that, and it really is going to be it's going to be a lot of fun it's going to be a fall of discovery in that way, trying to figure out how to use all these new tools, but there are a lot of a lot of new tools uh at your disposal when you're in this position. And and that's a pretty cool thing.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I'm asking you these questions as if it's all said. And I I hear you and I totally understand that this is something you guys are going to figure out. Like probably every aspect of this is something you're all going to figure out as you go. But it's going to be fun to it's going to be fun to watch. Is there any particular aspect of it that you're especially excited about? This is a you know, you've been doing you've been doing your thing for a little while now. And you've been doing it at SB Nation for a little while now. And so this is different in that sense. Is there some aspect of it that you're
1: especially excited about?
3: Well, I mean, I think the access to data really is going to be, you know, just being able to to add more layers to whatever the topic is that I want to explore is going to be cool. But in that same way, I mean, the, the access levels are going to be interesting. Too and, and now basically, in theory, if I've got an idea to pursue, not only do I have better data at my disposal, but I have per- potentially more access to coaches than I would before, to
4: mm. specific
3: coaches uh, th- that I would want to talk about. Because that was, I mean, I, I, I'm endlessly proud of, of the work that the SB Nation College football team did uh, over these last, I was there since 2011, most of that team hasn't changed. Uh, I never thought I would be really the one to, to to change it. But, um, now they're, 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 they're under a different name, banner society, and and they're going to keep doing great work. But we had just had to, we had to, we had to figure out what, what the friendly SIDs were. We had to figure out where we could get in. We had to plant seeds and let them grow for years and years and years. And it does kind of feel like maybe there's a shortcut or two that you can take now, which I won't complain about too much. Right.
0: Right. I can imagine it's, I can imagine it's just a little bit different. I mean, everybody, some somebody there must know, like know, well, Essentially, everybody that you might right. want to get to, much less having the name, you know, whenever you call or you email. Bill, there's another way that seems important to me, and and that is how do you how do you multiply yourself? I mean, you've got your everyone talks about how much you ride and how early you get up and how hard you work and all that. But now you've got all these new toys and resources and opportunities. And there's only so much Bill Conley to go around. It seems to me that I mean, I don't know how much this this happens in the world of journalism. Certainly, Nate Silver has built out a lot of people around him. But do people should not they shouldn't you have like a research assistant or three? Shouldn't you have some interns that are doing things that allow you to 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 take advantage of these resources and multiply your output beyond what you normally can do just by yourself? Shouldn't that be part of it?
3: Well, for one of the other people I did, that when I when I went on my little tweet stream uh, uh, with the announcement, one of the other people I thanked right up top was uh, my wife, who a couple of years ago quit her job um, uh-huh. to basically act like a third hand uh, with what I was trying to do. It allowed me to get a lot more data cranked out last fall, okay. especially last fall. Previous years, too, but especially last fall. Okay. And, um, so that so she like that, that has been uh, immensely helpful and and she, you know it's it's in house so it's not hard to
0: <laughs> coordination is easy
3: exactly right I don't have to make three phone calls so no, that that has helped immensely but um, that that is another area where you know even if it's not an intern or something like that we we do have researchers on staff now yep. and. Um, I, it'll be up to me like I think the fact that I did DIY ish for so long is going to help immensely, um, but it's still going to take a little while to get used to not doing no
0: it, 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 um, it hurts in a way it hurts in a way you <laughs> here's my here's my challenge to you in the interest of college football wisdom challenge you to take to figure out how to take advantage work through some other people it's hard for all of us who do a lot of diy work it's hard for us to figure out how to work with other people or through other people but with the resources they have now and with all the opportunities and you already being relatively maxed out it's interesting. we're talking about this we just had we just had an interesting conversation with the researcher at duke who studies like the limits of of human energy expenditure like literally (laughs) like drawing out the envelope from you know tour de france triathlons down to like you know, ultra marathons and pregnancies, but well, there's a, there's an actual limit. So there's a limit to what you can do, Bill. We need you to, <laughs> to take advantage. Anyway, just a new suggestion. So Bill, we're talking to Bill Connolly, of course, Bill using his Twitter profile as his intro. I'll, I'll tell you what he writes: Writer for ESPN, professional nerd, SMP plus. He's the creator of SMP plus author of uh, more than one book, book called Well, there's a enterprise called study hall. There's multiple books. One of them is called the 50 best asterisk best college football teams of all time. And he also lists a Puma addiction. Bill, you can follow him on Twitter at ESPN underscore Bill C. Bill, let's shift gears and talk about football. Can we please? 2019 college football. What are you th- thinking about? How do you, when you think about the season, I know you're probably neck deep in some preview right now. Stepping back, as you think about the season, just high level, what are the top stories? What has your eye? What are you interested in?
3: Well, man, I think... You know, number one, you know, when you start with the national title race, um, we're coming off of a year that had maybe the least interesting national title race of at least my, you know, life as a writer, we'll say, uh, these last eight seasons of full-time writing. Uh, It was, you know, I always say that, you know, college football, its biggest strength is its depth that, you know, you can, if you dig deep enough, you can always find something interesting and and exciting to write about. And, And that's that remained true last year. We had to dig a little harder last year to keep things interesting because it was clear from about mid-October on what was going to happen. Right, uh, and even even beyond Alabama and Clemson, we're like, okay, well, we don't really have a playoff race here until like Notre Dame maybe loses, and they just kept winning. And you know, it was just it was hard to really, really, really get all the way enthusiastic about the national title race last yep. year. So yep. We're staring at a situation where the top two teams are the same top two teams as last year, and mm-hmm. uh, you know the over under win totals right now for both Alabama and Clemson are eleven point five. So it's basically will they lose once or zero times? Right. And that's for, for you know we've experienced some really exciting races, and 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 it's really hard to get behind that. But I'm curious about everything else. Uh, this is an area where maybe just having a playoff instead of a BCS title game will keep things intriguing to a certain degree because. There's still a lot of, you know, Georgia and LSU in the SEC have a, mm-hmm. have a lot of interesting questions to ask. We yep. we, we don't, you know, the, o, the Oklahoma aspect is still there. They're probably the third most likely team to post a really high win total, and obviously they were in the playoff the last two years, so that's not amazingly interesting either. But we've got this tech, weird Texas thing kind of floating out there um, where, you know, the, the, the numbers aren't real big fans, but Tom Herman has ripped off two number-hating seasons in four years, and maybe that's a... Maybe that becomes a thing, and mm-hmm. um, so I, there are still, you know, we we enter a season at this point after I've written previews about everybody and all that. Like, there is always going to be a, a giant list of questions that'll be interesting to watch how they get answered. But you do have to dig down to the second level because I think we know who the top two teams are.
0: And then we almost have to make a conscious choice to attend to things right differently. You have to kind of okay, let's yeah. turn our eyes away. Let's t- let's like take a genuine interest and who's going to win the big 10. Let's take a genuine interest right. in the Pac-12 North. You know, let's let's find these other stories, you know, you know, the the quarterback out of Arizona. Can he, is he going to be interesting again? Like there's the, right. there are these stories, but we almost have to choose because otherwise you're just going to get the glare of Alabama and Clemson is going to kind of block everything else out. So Yeah,
3: and the, and, and the fact that college football is so Broad, it does help again because, like, I, I, one of the most exciting division races for me this year is the Big Ten West. Not a national title contender, yeah, right. but you got enormous fan bases everywhere you look, and they're really excited about their chances this year. Obviously, Nebraska and their second year lead potential, we're kind of curious about, but Minnesota. This whole, episode, yeah. I feel like we've talked about Nebraska the way we should have been talking about Minnesota. Interesting. But Wisconsin's going to be Wisconsin, and Iowa's going to be Iowa. Northwestern somehow won last year, and I can't explain how Phil. And so that's a fascinating race to me, but it's not going to have anything to do with the national title race.
0: Well, that's, that's I, I could not possibly agree with either of those statements more, but this is what we have to do. And we're kind of in this world with, with Dabo and Saban. We're kind of in this world for a little while. So let's let's unpack that just a little bit. So say a little bit more. Let's set aside Northwestern because I don't I I refuse to believe in them, even after they won the division last year. And tell us a little bit more because because people kind of know the Nebraska story, but we can talk about it. Um, The Wisconsin perennial story, but they've slipped back or the others have risen to them. But then people, you know, Iowa. Is this a real Iowa year or not? It sounds like people believe in them more. And then Minnesota is terrifically interesting. So can you just real quickly tell us tell people why they should be paying attention to Big Ten West this year?
3: Yeah, I mean, you do have uh, the two stalwarts, the two up-and-comers. The stalwarts, of course, are Nebraska and Iowa. We know – I mean, sorry, uh, Wisconsin and Iowa. We know what we're going to get from Iowa. Uh, We're going to get, you know, like a lot of teams in the Big Ten, Michigan State, Northwestern, we're going to get a team that runs probably more than it should because they don't do it incredibly well. Uh, But they're going to always have tight ends involved. They're going to always have a more interesting passing game than maybe we think they do. And and they're going to have a pass rush and a really – super smart defense that just absorbs whatever you're trying to do and makes life really, really difficult even if you beat them. Um that they should be extremely Iowa this year. They that should be even with losing those two tight ends, they they return a whole lot else.
4: Uh, and I'm
3: pretty I think this is a top twenty five level Iowa team which You know, they're usually around that level, but I think this might be a little bit more high end uh, than the normal Iowa team is. And they're going to keep so many games close that we saw, what was it, 2015 when, you know, they they had a bunch of close games. They just happened to win them all that year and and almost make college football playoffs because of it. Um, They have that potential again, and they've added a lot of receiver transfers that are kind of. High end. I'm not sure if they completely know who's going to be eligible yet, but this Oliver Martin kid from Michigan. Uh, they got one of the. They, they got a Buffalo transfer, uh, like, like like 38 other teams did. Uh, a bunch of people picked that roster clean, unfortunately for Buffalo. But um, <laughs> they, like, they, it, it's a really interesting Iowa team. It's a really well, so, interesting Wisconsin team. In that,
0: Bill, let me let me we, hold on for a second and just say you know, we're talking about the Big Ten West in and of itself, yeah. but of course because these teams are strong and stronger than they have been in the past they can influence the big 10 east race yeah. and and also yeah. chance comes into play like which of those big 10 east contenders have to play these teams do they play them on the road or do they play them at home so you know if we're really interested in michigan's and ohio state who's going to come out who's going to be the big 10 representative in the playoff they have to go through these teams
3: yeah yeah and wisconsin has uh i think they play at they play michigan state and they play at ohio state oh they play michigan michigan state and at ohio state
4: so mm-hmm.
3: that's bad for wisconsin but it's good for um Intrigue because they right. could, they could win at least one of those games and influence that race for sure. But, um, but yeah, I mean Wisconsin still has Jonathan Taylor. Uh, their defense was wrecked by a really young secondary last year, and that's not the case anymore. So they should be pretty Wisconsin. But Minnesota is the most interesting team. I mean, we we know with Nebraska, it's, it's Scott Brown's second year. Last time he was a second year coach at a place that went twelve and zero. He has a sophomore quarterback, just like he had a sophomore quarterback then. It looks like Adrian Martinez is the real deal. Yep. I don't trust their defense enough uh, to believe any of the the national title hype, and I can't believe that they're still pretty high on the odds list for the national title. I thought that was just kind of like a gimmick that would go down when people actually started betting. Um, But Minnesota is super, super interesting to me. They you know, I, I think we assume that Scott Frost went in all like, all in on freshmen last year. That's kind of the assumption. And it was true at quarterback and a little bit at, at running back. But Minnesota played two freshman uh, quarterbacks, two freshman running backs. The entire receiving core outside of Tyler Johnson was freshmen. Freshmen and sophomores all throughout the offensive line, really? freshmen on the defensive line. It was, it was maybe the youngest lineup in the country. Okay. And you don't... They looked good. They looked awesome. So
0: you don't do that by chance. This is PJ Fleck coming in there as a first-year coach, and apparently it sounds like saying, "Look, I got to, I got, I got to start from the ground zero here." He must have. Yeah, taken Yeah,
3: and it, it was his second year. He actually carried oh, a okay. little bit of, of, of a veteran roster his first year, but that didn't stop him from going with the youth movement the first moment possible. Got it. Okay. Um, but they, you know, like I mean, they, they when they looked bad last year, they were absolutely horrible. They got crushed by Illinois. They got crushed by Nebraska, but. They crushed Wisconsin. They crushed Georgia Tech. They beat, they destroyed Purdue. Um, and they got stronger they over the State. course of really the year. Team.
0: Did they get stronger over the course of the year, right, as you'd expect? They, with that.
3: Yeah, they, they won three out of four. Basically, when they changed from one freshman quarterback to another, when Tanner Morgan took over a quarterback, um, they seemed to hit a different level of consistency that might might have been a sign. You never know with those small samples, but it might have been a sign that they're ready for a top 25 level of play this mm-hmm.
0: year. Mm-hmm. Bill, talking about those guys and, and their transition over time raises an interesting question for an analyst like yourself. Whenever you think about, and more than think about, it, when you model how, a, how good a team is going to be, you consider returning production, you consider the roster talent. How do you think about it? How does it factor into your numbers when the incoming talent is just so much better than the outgoing talent? A t- when a yeah. new, new coach comes in and just recruits at a different level than the, than the previous coach?
3: Yeah, it does have an impact, but I think we, we usually rush that. We usually think that class is going to have an impact before it does cuz it's really okay. hard to just turn your you know, you're too deep over to true freshman and expect good things but basically the way i do it within my projections is that you know the biggest the, the biggest portion of my of my S P plus projections in a given off season come from that returning production figure looking at how you did last year and what what you do or don't return from that uh and i use returning production as opposed to returning starters and give extra weight to the places that seem to have the most uh impact on uh improvement or aggression so quarterback play and then, kind of surprisingly enough, receiving core and defensive backfield; yep. those three areas have seem to have by far more of an effect on you going up or down than the rest of the uh, the rest of the units do. So, okay. I start with that. But I do use recruiting when it comes to basically trying to, to, to kind of estimate the further production you're losing, what's the caliber of athlete you're replacing it with. Yep. Um, so it does play a role. It, and so it, it does tend to prop up the Tennessees of the world who always recruit well but seem to struggle to develop or, or actually turn those good recruiting classes into good performance. But um, on average, it makes the numbers uh, more you know better, so therefore, I use it,
4: yep,
0: so speaking of your numbers you you posted something right after the end of the season last year, early February, you posted your mm-hmm. you know preliminary numbers for twenty nineteen, and you can do that because you know the recruiting classes, you know roughly who's going to graduate, who's going to go pro, but then of course, there are transfers, and so they'll change over time. You're about to update those numbers, which will be great. um by the way, one of the things I noticed in looking at your numbers we our preliminary numbers showed a surprising gap between Alabama and Clemson. So they ended last year, and our numbers, you know, neck and neck. And Mm -hmm. then, But the regression's so much more for Clemson this year than for Alabama. We show them five points better. Looking at your numbers, again, these are just your preliminary February numbers. But again, you you show an Alabama five-point gap to number two, which is Georgia, then Clemson's right there. So it's interesting that two different systems both say, look, as much as we make this an Alabama-Clemson thing, that probably is an Alabama-Clemson thing, we -hmm. see more of a gap there than maybe people are thinking
4: about.
3: Yeah, I mean, Alabama has just been so ridiculously steady. I think first or second in S and P Plus for decades straight now, and um, first in recruiting class, you know, in, in whatever it is, eight of the last nine years or something like that. Like the the general baseline is just higher there, and I don't necessarily mind that. I think it's obvious on a on a. One game series kind of situation. I mean, Davos, Sweeney prepares his team to play Alabama better than anybody else does. Uh, Kirby Smart has, has figured it out for about three quarters, but not quite four years. Right. Um, but, it, you know, it's obvious that coaching matchup works pretty well for Clemson. and that's fine. But, uh, you know, I think, I do think Clemson last year, you know, I may, I, I, I made a little tweak in S&P plus that, that kind of more heavily adjusts for conference and, and the overall level of play. Uh, than it used to, and it, it solved kind of one of uh, what I felt was a, at least a little bit of a problem. It felt like my, the mid-majors were maybe a little bit too high mm-hmm. uh, in my rankings, and I solved that to a certain degree. But in the process, it bumped Clemson down a lot because it was a giant reminder that that the ACC was hot garbage right. last year, <laughs> Right, and Clemson didn't have to play any of the cards they had Except in about one and a half games. Right. And um, I think that helped a lot when it came to Alabama at the end of the year.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the other side of the Southeast Conference. And because I want to give you a chance to talk about Missouri and <laughs> use Missouri to tell us something about the SEC East, which, you know, it's kind of been an afterthought and it hasn't been terrifically interesting because Georgia has been so clearly the class of that division but with Florida coming back with Tennessee at least having a credible coach for the first time in a while, Missouri seems to be competitive year in year out. What what should we be thinking about with the SEC East?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it is in better shape than it's been in a little while. It was last year because Florida, you know, Florida had a, a mid-season slump. They let the Georgia game get away from them and then they just kind of they just got stumped by Missouri the very next week. But from that point forward, they averaged 45 points a game. Uh, they crushed Michigan. They crushed Florida State, which, I mean, isn't as much of an accomplishment as it was in other years, but they still did it. Um, and so they ended up, I think S&P, what, ninth or something to that effect. And now they're basically, their, their two deep is very high continuity outside of the offensive line, which I don't put as much weight into. So, right. um, it looks like, you know, if Georgia's a top three team, Florida's a potential top six or not eight or nine team, and then you've got Missouri and South Carolina in the teens. Um, Tennessee really is interesting this year because of their continuity, not only the recruiting, but the fact that they return almost everybody. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you're, you're looking at, what is that, five teams that, when I post the uh, updated projections, I think it's five teams in the top 26 overall, with Kentucky still at 40th despite losing most of their defense. Okay, uh, and, and poor, poor Vanderbilt. Sitting at 51st, but they're going to really struggle to hit six wins. So, um, right, right. You know, that's that's
0: a, that's a tough division right there. That is. So, we, we, the West usually has four or five teams in the top 15, which is just absurd. And now yeah. you're saying the East has five in the top 26, which is really quite strong. So, it's good to see it's, I think it's good to see that. And, you know, it means that Georgia we may be a little quick on Georgia. If Florida is is back like that and Missouri is feisty as usual, then we may be a little bit quick on Georgia, which would be fun. It'd be nice if it wasn't just a a, a kind of a, a walking Georgia and Alabama into the playoff along with Clemson. Um,
3: yeah, no, I think that's definitely you – know, Georgia's the best team, but they are one upset from being yeah, right. in, in a giant – mess yeah
0: right and, and and i like again i like what you what you're pointing out about the big 10 west and the chance for that to raise some interest in the big 10 east which we could always use i mean that's been a little boring for the last couple of years as well we've only got a few minutes left and i want to ask uh, you know as we cast our eyes a little bit more broadly i, I read somewhere or heard somewhere that that this interest i think this is true that every year of the playoffs so far one of the four playoff teams has come from outside the preseason top 10 and I don't know mm-hmm. if that's the AP or the coaches or whatever, and, and it's a little bit surprising because it's been such a top-heavy sport for a little while, and increasingly so. But at least one of those four, no maybe they weren't competitive before they got there, but at least one of those four showed up unexpectedly if you take the preseason numbers. So who knows if that's going to continue or not, but if you were to look around and, and, and name some candidates for that this year, who would you think about and maybe it would help to, to i think i have the coaches poll here we can use that as mm-hmm. a as a top 10 who are we gonna, we're going to we're going to eliminate from consideration the coaches poll top 10 so the let me just run through them Clemson Alabama Georgia Oklahoma Ohio State LSU Michigan Florida Notre Dame and Texas so we're going to we're going to set those 10 aside and say mm-hmm. of the remaining teams just to give us some people to keep an eye on who do you think is most likely if i give you two or three most likely is to be that that outside the top 10 team that lands right. in the playoff like we've always had so far who would that be
3: um i'm going to kind of cheat and and combine some i would say the washington oregon winner yep um it's going to have a very good chance i mean oregon plays auburn right out of the gates uh that, that's a good time to play auburn because that'll be whoever auburn ends up starting quarterback it'll be their first start probably a true freshman or a redshirt freshman so that's a good opportunity there uh but the winner of that game is going to have a pretty good ch- shot at finishing 12-1 and for all the talk about the Pac-12 and you know they're getting left out of the playoff that means they're terrible no I mean their their conference champion lost more than one game that was mm-hmm. the biggest that's the biggest thing they've had going against them these right. last couple of years and Bill um, Hunt, are you saying one.
0: are you saying then that maybe the rest of the Pac-12 is down it's kind of helpful in some sense to have the rest of the conference down right so that the winner of that yeah. that matchup might actually you know run the table on the rest of the
3: conference yeah I mean Washington was in very good shape the last two years playoff-wise, but they lost, uh, was it, Oregon last year? They lost to Arizona State inexplicably the year. No, they lost to the Cal. That was their big okay. loss last year. Okay. And we held that against the Pac-12, but it could just be that those middle-class teams in the Pac-12 are pretty good. I had, in S&P Plus, I had Pac-12 grading out better than the ACC last year. Right. Um, but the ACC had Clemson, so we didn't really punish them all that much. But, no, right. I think the winner of that that game, Washington Oregon, has a very good shot at finishing 12-1. Uh, and then – Uh, I would say, you know, the winner of Penn State-Michigan State. I think it's in Uh, uh, East Lansing this year. But that's another one where, I mean – they're going to need some breaks. They're going to need to win a couple big games, otherwise. But that is an opportunity. Uh, you know, uh, another twelve and one opportunity there if they were to win that. Especially if it's Penn State, they get Michigan. Uh, yeah, they get Michigan at home. Probably lose at Ohio State, but if that's their only loss, they'd be in pretty good shape.
0: That's great. And then Ohio State might go, you know, do something crazy like lose a game at Iowa or something to knock them back. Exactly. So you just named number twelve Washington and number thirteen Oregon, the winner of that as a candidate, and then the this is I love this is really off schedule the Penn State Michigan State winner. You said it's in East Lansing this year. Penn State's coaches Mm -hmm. poll number 14, Michigan State coaches poll 20. You're calling for maybe a dark horse coming out of the Big Ten East. That's great fun. Listen, Bill, this is such a fun time of year. I know you're having a ball with it. We wish you the best with the work that you're doing. We're excited to see you over at ESPN. We we are awaiting weekly whatever new podcast you decide to do because God knows the world needs that. So please, (laughs) please push that along. But as always, we appreciate you taking the time to be with us, and we'll be watching your work.
3: Absolutely. Thank
0: you. To Bill Conley, you can follow Bill. He is at ESPN now. His Twitter handle is a good way to stay on top of his work. It's at ESPN underscore Bill C. Bill Conley. I want to give a special shout out to Danielle Bruno, our longtime sound engineer. This is her last show, last show on the with the family here. She's been doing it for three years. Sound engineer, great technical chops, great spirit, makes a huge contribution, will be badly missed. But she's on to bigger and better things, and we're excited about it. But we want to send her out with a big thank you for three years of great work and great contributions to Wharton Moneyball. We have a couple things to talk about. We have one more quick phone call to make. But before we do that, I want to note interesting things. Have you all seen what the Washington Wizards are doing? They've made news twice this summer with unorthodox hires. Just recently, they announced they hired Dean Oliver, Dean, longtime analytics guru started out in basketball, but he made big contributions in other places as well. He's worked for multiple teams. He wrote basketball on paper, I think is the name of the book he's best known for, but then he's the creator of ESPN's FBI, which is the best other than Massey Peabody, the best publicly available, I believe um, football analytics number created that thing thing. He's been working in motion tracking and a vendor for a, a lot of different sports, but he just got hired to be an assistant coach of all things, an assistant coach with the Wizards. And I think they're going to use him to coach the other coaches. I think this is the idea, that he's going to help bring them up to speed on some of the quantitative pieces. Really interesting hire. Dean's a terrific guy and a a, a friend of the program, and we wish him the best with that. But the Wizards also hired Sashi Brown earlier this summer. It's just a few weeks ago that they made a splash by hiring Sashi Brown. Sashi, of course, the two-year general manager with the Cleveland Browns, And they didn't rack up exactly a good one-loss record over those two years. They won one game. But they did rack up a lot of draft picks that those guys have been burning through like there's no tomorrow in order to build out the roster that they have. So Sashi takes a lot of flack for the years that he ran them, but the way he ran them produced what they're doing now, at least the capability of what they are going to do now and the wizards bring him in as an advisor of sorts he is a he's on staff he's on payroll he doesn't have line responsibility but as an advisor i think of maybe it's a little bit analogous to the role that paul De Podesta plays with the browns the browns hired him from the mets after previously being with some other baseball teams crossing sports and coming in and advising the owner there on and the and the and the front office on 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 how to run the place and Sashi is going to be providing some of that same advice. Terrifically interesting goings on with the Wizards, both unorthodox hires. They're clearly thinking outside the box. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with those guys. Gives you another reason to watch basketball down in Washington. All right. Well, I'll talk a little bit about soccer. The English Premier League kicks off this weekend. Maybe Friday is the opening opening game. for Liverpool. Who are they playing Friday? Norwich, Norwich, Liverpool kick this thing off. And, um, one After a historic 2018-2019 with Man City nipping Liverpool by one point at the wire and then Liverpool going on, of course, to win the Champions League. So a couple of phenomenal teams topping expectations with the Premier League. Man City, the odds on favorite, I don't know, something like two-thirds likely, according to the betting markets, to win the Premier League, but don't sell Liverpool out. You know, they do this thing over there. I didn't know about it till this year, but they do this thing. What do they call this thing? I've got it written down here somewhere. They do this exhibition game with the top two teams of each of, the, of last year's last year's top two teams. The community shield, the community shield, and they just played this three days ago. So you know, whenever there are these eras where there's two great teams, they end up playing the community shield over and over. And it's an exhibition game, but they kind of take it seriously, right? Because they're the two best teams. So it's somewhere between a regular season game and an exhibition. Game. It doesn't count. But they get there, and this year especially, because Man City and Liverpool are so clearly the class of the league. They just played this, and they went to a 1-1 draw, and then City won it 5-4 on penalty kicks. But it was a spirited affair, more spirited than people expect for an exhibition game. And that tells you something about how much these guys are going to know they're going to be going at it as they go through this year. So, by the way, um, lots of forecasts on how the league is going to go. There's a a big effort by Google and some others. Opta's one of them. To bring you know, big data, machine learning, artificial all the all that kind of stuff to forecasting the Premier League and and there's an article up about it. it's called the script. BT Sports did this out of Great Britain and the, and the, the and you can find it on the script. They forecast Man City with 94 points, six points above Liverpool, and then Tottenham and Chelsea. This looks kind of chalky to me. I'm not sure we needed. I'm not sure we needed all this technology to tell us that it was going to go Man City. Supposed to go Man City Liverpool. Tottenham and Chelsea. But the uh it's going to be interesting to see whether Liverpool can do it. Man City has just, you know, bought the world. They bought the world, but Liverpool has shown to be competitive despite not having quite the roster, but those two teams seem to be head and shoulders above the others. Going to be fun, going to be interesting kicking off again this Friday to talk a little bit more about soccer and to help me make it through this last half hour without any guess I, I decided to ring a buddy of mine. Who I always enjoy talking to, and as an excuse, let's let's ring up Chris Alexopoulos. Chris is the longtime soccer producer, lead soccer producer at ESPN. Chris, good morning to you. How are you?
2: Yeah, I love the return. I love getting the return phone calls. The show. <laughs> I uh, I'm really excited. Although I have a feeling that because Eric is out this week, that's the only reason that we're talking soccer. I know he's not a huge soccer fan. Well. From, uh,
0: Eric I met him in person. Eric is—that's amazing when he when when that's true because he seems to be a fan of every sport. So I just, it's almost hard for me to believe. I guess that might be true, but everyone's got their kind of weaknesses, you know. Like Shane, Shane has a thing about horse racing, I and mean, he just got—he has an attitude about horse racing. So it's that's his thing. Maybe maybe Eric has one about maybe Eric has one about soccer. My personal weakness is hot dog eating contests. For some reason, these guys like to talk about food eating contests and. i'm I'm not especially down for that but soccer it's growing on me chris you started working on me years ago with this stuff i've got some buddies around here now i've got friends who are kind of moving into the business and the stats are getting more and more interesting and i'm getting pulled more and more into it i just wanted to hear how things are going with you and and what is soccer looking like around espn right now outside of your work are you excited about the premier league kicking off and how will you be consuming it just kind of what's going on in your world right now chris
2: well, ESPN doesn't have the Premier League, so I, know, I end up I watching just like everybody else watching NBC, who does an excellent job with their coverage. I I, I'm, I would I, I would I enjoy watching their coverage.
0: Is so. that is is it okay around the mothership to have some of the TVs turned to NBC? is that is that is that is that, is that, is that, is that acceptable practice?
2: Yeah, I, I think so. I don't think there's any uh, proprietary. You know, there's so much soccer out there. There's so much. Well, tell, well, tell um, so us. A-
0: Tell us about that. What show, we're, we're, Everyone kind of pays a little um, – anybody paying attention to soccer pays a lot of attention to the Premier League. But where else do you think we should be paying attention?
2: Well, I'd like to say Major League Soccer because that's the thing that has the most growth potential in this country. Mm-hmm. And it's the uh, – you know, uh, MLS and U.S. soccer are, are the things most near and dear to my heart. Okay. It's always my hope that if the game is to grow here the way it really – you know, we really all believe it can grow and have been talking about for 30 years about how right. it will grow. It really has to be the U.S. soccer team, both men and women, and Major League Soccer, and, and to some extent the uh, NWSL, the Women's League, Yep. Uh, because they're domestic properties. You know, um, it's great to pick your team over in England, Chelsea, and Liverpool, and all that, but I think we all still believe that the, the for the game to really grow into one of the four major sports or one of the five you know, now a fifth major sport, uh, you know, I, I think the domestic game is the most important aspect of that. How now,
4: do you,
0: how do you feel about how the women's obviously they won, this is wonderful. How did you feel about the way they recovered? How do you feel about the fan support? And do you think do you think the sport will get a bump out of that?
2: I, I worry that it is so uh, it's like a it's like an Olympic sport, track and field. We're excited about it because we should be because they're excellent. Cause they're incredible you know their achievements are, are outstanding um but you know here we are a month and a half later and we just had their first uh, match against ireland uh the other night on saturday did did everybody know that <laughs> you know. they returned to the rose bowl you know they they were at the rose bowl They were you know, fifty thousand people there. Did, yeah. did you know that game was happening?
0: No, Chris, I didn't. I didn't. Oh, also, didn't eat my broccoli last night. I feel like I'm being chastised just a little bit.
2: No, I'm saying you are a perfect example of someone who was probably extraordinarily engaged in the Women's World Cup, rooting for the United States team, uh, proud of what they did and the way they did it, and the professional nature of, of how they played and playing for each other. They were yep. fantastic, like more than I I expected before. Okay. that the tournament began and here we are two months later yeah, and yeah. there are nwsl games going on and there are you know the u.s women made their return on saturday night and you're an, you're a big sports fan did you know any of those games or did you know any of those things are happening <laughs> no, so here we
0: are no yeah 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 well
2: and i think the, i think the women will get a little bit more uh i, I think there'll be a, a longer uh runway for the women because because the olympics are coming up um and, and that's a really really important tournament uh Some say bigger uh, than the Women's World Cup. I don't know if I agree with that. But Mm -hmm. regardless, there's still, you know, another really big tournament to keep the momentum going.
0: Okay, so to to give us a little bit of behind the scenes, you know, we ring you on a random Wednesday morning in August. You're the lead soccer producer at ESPN. What does your day look like today? Like what do you what's Chris Alexopoulos actually doing today?
2: Hundreds of emails. (laughs) Um, That's exciting. So
0: exciting, Chris. Glamorous. Glamorous, uh, really, really
2: exciting. Uh-huh. Now, I mean, so the, the biggest thing right now is, uh, is planning out the, for me personally, it's planning out the, the next uh, two weeks of matches. And we have a, an incredibly large and variant uh, number of properties. The International Champions Cup is wrapping up. We have mm-hmm. some pretty big MLS games coming up. We mm-hmm. have Liga MX and MLS. Uh, matches there. They have some tournaments that they're starting. They're starting the two leagues are starting to link up a little bit. So mm-hmm. they have what's called the Leagues Cup and the Campionis Cup. Mm-hmm. So uh, U.S. Open Cup is wrapping up. Syria is beginning. So there's all of there's all of that. European qualifiers are starting. We're planning Euro 2020. Mm-hmm. So for me personally, what I'll do, what I'm doing is uh, deciding who the announcers will be on those games, who the producer and the director will be, and what models for production will be doing. Some of those games. Um, you know, like any other sport, we are covering the uh, Major League Soccer Game of the Week. So we're doing the replays and the, you know and, and doing the, the broadcast from soup to nuts. Mm-hmm. Soccer, it's very different. Uh, so other, others, other properties are what we call world feed properties. And right. the ugly secret about soccer is that it's produced somewhere else and it comes here and you pretty right. much just put announcers on it. Right. That happens for World Cup and for the International Champions Cup and our beloved Premier League. Okay. So, um, anyway, my job is to basically deal with the different models uh, of coverage, decide who the announcers will be and what levels, uh, how we're going to cover them, what we're going to say, uh, you know, what features will run at certain points, how we're going to promote upcoming matches. Yeah. Um, there's a lot fun. going
1: on. We, this sounds we fun. Certainly
2: do not, yeah, we certainly do not have the market, you know, covered. The Premier League is on NBC. The World Cup, The World Cup is on Fox. Champions League is on Turner and we're accumulating just this massive amount of volume for ESPN Plus and okay. for our linear network. So, uh there's a, a staggering amount of soccer on television right now compared to when you and I were growing up.
0: So that is what's the what's the premier property you do have and is it you mentioned Syria and I, I've noticed that you guys you guys carry that a little bit higher profile than you used to. Is that is that about as high a profile of, of the properties?
2: No, I, I think our highest profile, honestly, is uh, U.S. soccer—the men's and women's okay. uh, matches. Uh, particularly as uh, we get toward the next year or two, as the me- as the you know the women are going through this victory tour now and heading toward the Olympics, and the men obviously will be beginning World Cup qualifying. Twenty twenty one will be a really, really big year for us right. uh, at ESPN because we'll have quite a large number of the uh, World Cup qualifiers whatever format that's going to be this time. We still kind of don't know. It's usually the hex where you play 10 games. We don't actually know what it's going to be this time, but we know we have the rights to a number of those broadcasts.
3: Do so you have the, the men world-
2: trying to get to Qatar in the World Cup, That'll be it. That's, that's sort of our premier thing. And Euro 2020 next summer is, is also our sort of biggest thing that we're looking forward to.
0: Okay, got it. Two, two other quick questions, and I'm going to to let you go, Chris. Uh, one is Pulisic. He's hired. He's signed with uh, Chelsea, right? This is isn't, yeah. this, isn't this exciting. It seems like a big deal. No,
2: no, I think it's a huge deal. I mean, he's replacing a fantastic player. He's at one of the premier clubs. Um, you know, I mean, this desperate. is this is
0: one way to American fans hearts. Right? give us give us a player that we can get excited about. Give us the star. I mean, it may not be it may not be the savviest way to consume soccer, but it is it is kind of the easiest way to hook the the public. No.
2: No, I mean, we've been talking about this, usually, um, you know, we've been talking about this on, uh, even on this show before, you know, for five or six years now, where (laughs) we're looking for a magic bullet, we're looking for one player who's going to transcend in Europe or here, but more likely in Europe, and, uh, you know, and right now, Polisic I think, is it. There are some other players who are worth noting in the German League, you know, uh, in particular, but I think this is... This is kind of it right now for you know <laughs> pl- Pulisic at Chelsea, you know if he can perform and perform well, you know yeah. it, it's a it's a gigantic deal. I mean he really missed out when the U.S. Oh my god, you know, the, 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 the the ramifications of not making the World Cup are still being felt right yeah. now. The the, yeah. the the ripple effect and the disappointment and all that. He really missed out in right. terms of like. Potential to to break out during that World cup, mm-hmm. so I think this is like that opportunity, so yeah, what am I looking for this uh, you know this fall in terms of you know what's happening in Europe? You know, I I think it's I think it's him. I think it's can he perform? You know, for Chelsea.
0: What what Uh, the the last question I had we can tie to this, and that is analytics. Do you know what the analytics say about him? And to what extent, as you as you think about all these properties that you're lining up and the schedules that you're sorting, is analytics playing a growing role at all? You know, you and I have talked about that over the years, and it's been a little slow going, especially on the production side. Where do you see it now?
2: In terms of uh, in terms of uh, (laughs) analytics. Soccer is still a little bit in that dead zone, uh, whether it be here or in Europe. Um, we just we're basically witnessing the death of something called the Audi Player Index right now, uh, which right. takes uh, as many of the uh, uh, you know a- as much of the data that can be uh, logged during a game and repurposes it for an, a number of uh, a number of different uses. And they were trying to rank players and make goalkeepers you know on par with forwards.
0: Right. But and, Chris, it was kind of awful, right? It kind of, did it die because it was too schlocky and bad?
2: I don't know that it was schlocky. I think, you know, this goes back to the very annoying point sometimes for people who uh, can enjoy analytics and, 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 and meaningful statistics on other sports like basketball and baseball in particular, and soccer is too fluid, too undefined, too apples to oranges, um, Audi tried to boil it all down to um, you know uh, a sort of a, a way to measure you know way way to measure each motion on the field and uh, the problem wasn't that they weren't able to come up with the right sort of numbers the problem was you know one they weren't able to define what makes up a final number hey uh, Carlos Vela had uh, you know had the the highest Audi Player Index number this week it was seven twenty. Okay, great. What's seven twenty? Right. So that was honestly the biggest problem. The, the other, you know, the other huge problem that's a problem in any sport is if you have announcers who don't believe in the statistic, it's not going to go anywhere. They're the right. ones who have to sell it on the air. Right. So um, it's it's you're, we're we're living in the last days. I think of Audi Player Index, and I, I think the next thing that will be tr- attempted on soccer is more of a visual type thing. You know, groups like uh, Second Spectrum. You know, have some really exciting um, ways to deliver content. Uh, you know, uh, it might not be something you'll see on your linear network when you turn on ESPN and you see a soccer game, but it might be something that you can go to ESPN 3 okay. or ESPN Plus or, you know, whoever, whatever network. So I think those are the next interesting sort of. Uh, yep. I, I think it's going to end up being more of a visual thing. Yep. Uh, I don't know if, if you've seen some of the stuff that Second Spectrum has done with uh, some of their sort of overlays. Uh, of games and, and sort of uh, real-time statistics and visual spectacle type uh, uh,
0: Let's do uh, it. We, know, I've, seen, I've seen very little, and we'd be interested. And, and I like what you're suggesting. It makes sense that, look, it's hard to distill this fluid, complicated game down to a number. In fact, it's so hard that people lose credibility when they try to do it which is one part of I what think, I'm hearing from you, but but maybe visually would be a way to get at it. And so Second Spectrum, which is a huge vendor in this space across all sports, if they're doing something interesting like that, we should have them on, we should look at some visuals, and we should see where Soccer Analytics is going. This is where you say it's going.
2: Well, I, I think it's going there because uh, I don't think making the announcer and the production crew the middleman to deliver
4: uh, sort of the message of okay. these statistics, yeah. I don't
2: think that model works. <laughs> really, I don't think it works in any sport. Personally, uh, I think... Soccer is too, you know, there's no, there are no timeouts.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know,
2: even if I make it a priority as a producer, I don't yeah. think that that message transcends the broadcast. Yeah. So it's, al- it's almost like a force. And if the announcer isn't in it, then it's not, uh, you know, it's not going to work for the audience. Okay. So I think honestly taking out the middleman by presenting fans with, you know, here's your statistical information in real time. This is going to be visually stimulating, yep. and if you're interested, you're interested. Yep. I don't have to try to tell you that you should be interested. That's so great. I think that's probably – we're probably skipping a step that probably shouldn't have been there in the first place. So that's my hope is that a little more of a visual uh, content is going to be the next step for this. So Soccer is still, like, obviously light years behind, uh, you know, baseball and, and now basketball, I, I think, from what I see.
4: well, And they're, football,
2: they're, too. I mean, you know – the.
0: You know, we're,
4: your we're,
0: metrics are... Well, they, they're, they're behind, but they're coming. There are lots of folks working on it, and it's interesting to hear your take. I don't think anybody has a better sense of it than you do, so I'm very help, very glad to hear from you. Chris, we're going to have to let you go and, and wrap up the show, but we really appreciate your taking the time to be with us this morning. Good to talk to you. Absolutely. That was Chris Alexopoulos, the lead soccer producer for ESPN. You can follow him at Chris Zop. That has been the full two hours. That has been another episode of Wharton Moneyball. We appreciate you being with us big shout out to Matty Dats, always carrying us through but especially today um, all the help he gives and all the direction he gives to this program very much appreciated we will be back same time same place next week between now and then enjoy your sports for more insight from business radio please visit
1: businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu